Simple Beep, episode 33, Our Setups, Then and Now. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And this episode, we're going to go in a little bit of reverse chronological order and look at some various ways that we use the Mac now and ways that we've used it in the past by looking at the kind of things that we do day to day with our setups and see if there's any continuity and what things have been left behind and what things have changed for the better. But before we get into that, as always, we have some follow-up. Yes, uh, in the time between our last episode and this one, uh, my my fellow co-host Ed Cormany has launched a new Apple podcast called PicoMac, and I know I've been enjoying it every morning as I kind of get ready for the day. It's a perfect length on a, a different Apple-related topic every day. It's true. It's only kind of a podcast, even. <laughs> and that was part of the plan, was that everyone's like, oh, another podcast, another Apple podcast. And part of what I wanted to do is to be able to say, look, I promise you, you will have time for this podcast. Because basically, if you're this far into this episode, you could have listened to one already. <laughs> yeah, so the basic format of the show is, the tagline is, your daily bite of Apple. And so... I realize that I have lots of thoughts that don't get put into words because they're too big for tweets and don't really fit on this show because we're talking about classic Mac and I wanted to talk about the current Mac. And so I do 300 to 500 words. And that means that I think the longest episode just like barely topped over three minutes. Um, so they are really bite-sized. And even if you don't have any time for listening, you can just go and read it because there's full transcripts of every episode. So if you're interested in hearing what I have to say about current Apple stuff, you can check that out. It's uh, at picomac.com. And I, I really appreciate its kind of hybrid nature, which is unique as far as I can tell. Because uh, the episode that you couldn't record immediately because of your cold. Yeah, I was pretty sick last week. <laughs> but I could still read it uh, like at the same time that it would have been released. And I love the, the hybrid format, read and or listen. Yeah, I had to uh, rely on that feature very quickly into it. I, uh, I started a daily podcast on Monday and started getting sick on Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> uh, some other follow-up back to uh, our episodes, back to our show. One thing that I just noticed recently, and this is a really tiny nitpicky piece of follow-up, but in our last show where we were talking about hacking the classic system, we were talking about the cursor resources and the fact that the Mac cursor basically hasn't changed from all the way in the beginning until uh, until we got to the Retina era with uh, well into OS X. But I did notice something very subtle after that, which... I think people who have a keen eye for this kind of thing will notice is that while if you're on a non-retina Mac now, the 16 by 16 cursor is basically the same. All of the white and black pixels are exactly the same, but it does have a very subtle drop shadow that was not present in the classic Mac. And I noticed this particularly at work today because I was using Word, which I hate. <laughs> And one of those features of Word that I kind of think of as very Microsofty and almost Windows-like is, you know, if you're in Word and you put the mouse cursor over the left margin and the arrow flips around 180 degrees mm -hmm. and you can use it to select entire lines at a time. And I've grown to actually like that feature, if not its 
visual indication. And I found out that it's useful in things like my favorite text editor, Text Wrangler, has the same feature. It just doesn't have a changed cursor. But if you drag on the line numbers, it will do the same sort of thing. But I noticed when the cursor flipped around, they took the original 16 by 16 Mac cursor and just did flip horizontal on it. And that's still the resource that's in Word today. So when you do that, the cursor will lose its shadow. And you can tell that it's kind of non-native. One more item of follow-up from our previous episode. I briefly mentioned some software written for the classic Mac by the Icon Factory, in particular, iControl and Icon Dropper. And I said that I didn't really have the greatest understanding of which did which and uh, what the differences were. Uh, and since that episode, we found a nice review of iControl at ATPM about this particular Macintosh. Not to be confused with ATPFM. <laughs> exactly. And uh, and this is a review that's actually still live on the site, so there's no need to go into the internet archive. And we'll put a link in the show notes. It is a review primarily of iControl, but it does a good job of briefly going over the other software offered by the Icon Factory at the time and what the other apps they made did. Yeah, it's a good resource because I think the link that we put in the show notes was a Wayback Machine yeah. link and basically all the images were broken because it's really hit or miss with Wayback. Sometimes you get the entire site looking just like it was and sometimes you get basically text only. Probably depends on like where they stored the images, how they were served, whether they were using caching or who knows. So yeah, so this link is uh, is complete and has a better view at what we were talking about. So should we talk about uh, current Apple stuff? Yeah, why not? Let's deviate from the norm. We're, we're just going to start briefly with what we're using as our current Macs. And like we said, we're going to use that as our jumping off point to go backwards. I think in many of our episodes, we try on purpose to go chronologically, but this one's going to be a little bit reverse chronological. So I think I have the newest Mac here, which is a 4K iMac, which I purchased last fall. And I was a little bit surprised that I went to an iMac, but the gorgeous 4K screen lured me in. Um, and it, of course, is something that's far, far different than the original Mac. I know when the 5K iMac came out, there was someone who had mocked up an image where they got basically a screenshot that Apple had put on the website that was you know, a full 5K screenshot that was showing off the size and magnitude of it that you could you know you could display it even on a non-retina monitor and see just how little of the screen you could see and then they superimposed on that the original macintosh <laughs> the the screen of the original macintosh with the japanese woodcut image and it was it was like down in the corner under the next to the dock yeah itty bitty so yeah i've got a 4k imac it's got a 3.1 gigahertz i5 because it is hermetically sealed and you can't put anything into it. I maxed out the RAM at 16 gigs and got the two terabyte fusion drive. I was contemplating a NAS and figured it was way too much trouble and I could pretty much fit everything inside the machine and then just set a backup drive next to it. And of course, it came with OS X The Captain installed on there. And that was my first experience with El Capitan because I hadn't upgraded any of my other Macs to it before this one showed up with it pre-installed. So you get to see that uh, San Francisco system font in its full retina glory. 
yeah, and the new mission control features. That was kind of eventually what pushed me to put my work machine up to El Capitan was I enjoy the uh, the new mission control features where you can just drag a window up and get it to go to a different space, although that is kind of flaky, I've found. I am on a MacBook Air, a 13-inch MacBook Air, and it's uh, the 2013 model right after they switched to the Haswell uh, vintage of Intel Core processors. Oh, yeah. I don't know what vintage of i5 I have. It's it's the new one that's not the newest possible one, but it's the one that Apple has. Maybe there's a bridge involved. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a, it's an, also an i5, but only at 1.3 gigahertz. It is also hermetically sealed, so I maxed out the RAM at 8 gigs, and uh, it has a 256 gigabyte flash hard drive, also running the Captain. And uh, I, like, so this machine is almost three years old, two and a half years old, and it still gets, like, pretty good battery, which has become my primary benchmark, uh, or, like, the, the, the spec that I care the most about, because as we'll probably discuss a lot of the work that I do aside, maybe from editing this very podcast is like pushing text around. And so uh, I don't need a whole bunch of processor power or lots of ma'am or Ram overhead. It's uh, it's just about how long can I work without needing to plug in? Yeah. And I know when I got my work computer, which I'm not counting among these, but I got it a couple years ago and it was a MacBook air. And when I was not doing anything resource intensive with it, when its battery was fresh out of the container, it would say like 17 hours of battery life. Yeah. And so even if that's what you're working down from over several years, that's going to last for a while, especially since we've built up a tolerance with our previous Apple laptops of saying, oh yeah, two and a half hours of battery life. Like that's all right. Whereas that's like the operating system is flashing warnings at you that everything has gone horribly wrong at this point. It's true. Like around two hours, my battery's in the red and I get the little warning, which is insane. No, but I mean that if your max battery life is only like two and a half or three hours, oh. you're going to get start getting warnings from the system saying, service your battery. It's about to die. It's You maybe shouldn't even have this computer anymore. <laughs> yeah. You want to talk about uh, the software we use? Yeah, so I think that we share a lot of software that we use on a regular basis. And of course, that's, again, that's a feature of the Mac is that there's a lot of built-in software, far more than there was in the classic era. Although we don't all use uh, the built-in software, as we'll see. But I know that it's pretty much impossible to live without having a web browser open. And when I got my iMac, I said, okay, I'm going to try it. I'm going to go to Safari. And one of the reasons I was open to trying Safari in El Capitan was that it gained the feature that was also coming along in iOS 9, which was content blockers. Because at this point, my pretty much my primary criterion for using a web browser is not energy efficiency, is not any of that. It's how well it blocks ads. And I, I know there's a whole debate there, but I enjoy the the clean experience. Um, one downside for that on Safari is that, first of all, it's hard to find what the content blocker extensions are. And, but then once you have one, they're not very customizable. So I would like a whitelist. I mean, there are certain sites that I would prefer to be able to just quickly whitelist. And I could do that in Chrome, but I'm sticking with Safari. I found it fast and... Uh, generally an excellent web browser. 
Yeah, I'm there with you. I'm using Safari. I think I've almost always used Safari because of like kind of a phantom thing. Like it'll just be better if it's <laughs> if it comes from Apple. Like they can they can more closely integrate it with the system and things. And I was happy to hear like a a quick segment in the most recent ATP where they were talking about how um, Bluetooth headphones experience lag watching YouTube in Chrome, but not watching YouTube in Safari because Apple can talk to like the AV layer and say like, you're going to, you know, work in a delay with showing the video to compensate for the latency and Google's rolling their own stuff, trying to like integrate closely with YouTube probably. Yeah. Not necessarily that it's even private APIs that other people don't have access to, but the fact that they're not going to specifically target them with their Mac version when they're building multi-platform browsers. Yeah. So I, I, I like to cite that as something that has absolutely no effect on me, but is one of the like uh, theoretical reasons that I stay in Safari. There was a long period, I would say probably mm, seven or eight years, where I basically did not use Safari. And I was bouncing constantly back and forth between Firefox and Chrome, and those seemed to be pretty much the only two options for me. Again, because I was, you know, I was considering it in terms of ad blocking and and the general experience. Every every I don't know few months, I would try Safari again and like try to load with the ESPN homepage, and it would just explode with ads at me. Uh, even with some of the ad block extensions installed, they just didn't have the same level of ability to access the DOM and get things out of your face. <laughs> and uh, that was really what was keeping me away. Do you mind sharing what you're using for content blocking? Like I said, it was hard to find which are the actual content blockers. And I only found a couple when I first installed, you know, when I was first setting up this Mac. And this one is called Adamant. It has literally no settings. It's either on or off, but does a relatively good job. I am using Ghostery, which has all the nice settings, but is a Safari extension, not like a true native content blocker. Right. Well, the content blockers are extensions. That's the problem. It's just the question of whether they use the content blocker API. And that's what's hard to find unless the person who makes it is advertising that fact up front and you believe them. So like I said, I bounced back and forth a lot in OS X between two browsers, and I did the same thing on the classic Mac. At that point, the two main browsers, obviously pre-Safari, that I was bouncing back and forth between were Netscape Navigator and later Communicator and Internet Explorer. And they were the dominant browsers on, well, every platform. And it's Kind of funny to think that they, I mean, I, I envision them now as very much like the battle between Firefox and Chrome that sort of ebbed and flowed and one company would get the upper hand, the other one would come out with new features, people would kind of trade back and forth, and you would generally expect to be able to find one or the other on any computer, Mac or otherwise, that you sat down to. I was all Internet Explorer uh, back in the day. And I remember thinking like, you know, obviously Internet Explorer carries a pretty universal negative connotation now. But back then I remember thinking like, wow, some of this stuff is really cool. And I can remember there is an option in the file menu to do like offline browsing where it would only load resources from your cache. And for someone who was on dial up, like that was pretty great. Like I could 
go back and like scroll further down a site's news page uh, because it had all loaded into the cache and I had only like clicked around when it, when I was actively connected. And so I remember thinking like, this is great. Why would anyone use anything else? Why would anyone complain? Yeah. One of the features that I think it was in internet Explorer five, which was launched for the classic Mac and then also kind of carried on as I think it was five for OS 10 for a fairly long time in internet Explorer. There was a pre RSS subscription type service where you would save all of your bookmarks and then you could have it subscribe to the sites. And what it would do is, again, for optimizing for dial-up, is that it would go through, I think you could choose like a, a single site or a folder or all of your bookmarks, and you'd say, refresh them and tell me if there have been any updates. And it would go through and it would just fetch the HTML, like none of the other site resources. And it would see if there had been any changes. And then you could just go through and look at the sites that had been updated since you last checked. And it would even it would even do that automatically, I think, like on launch. And then you could refresh it manually if you wanted to. And as someone, uh, again, later on, we'll talk about our classic Macs, but one of mine was a G3 iMac. And of course, Internet Explorer 5 uh, was like in those transitional OS 9 to OS 10 days, so you could get it pinstriped with like the UI Chrome all in the flavor of whatever iMac you were using it on, which I appreciated. Since we were talking about it, the sort of syndication features, pre-RSS syndication features, do you have an RSS reader on your setup at the moment? Not a dedicated uh, application. I use dig.com's uh RSS service and reader because it was the closest thing I could find to like an all-in-one Google reader thing, uh, like right after the big Google reader shut down. Okay. When I was using RSS heavily, I was always using a dedicated client and all the people who had all of the roller coaster ride of Google reader, I was just never part of that. Nice. Um, and it was an OS 10 app called Vienna, which I think it still exists. It was an open source project. And I used that religiously. You know, I, I read articles out of it daily for many, many years. But it's interesting to think that if we're comparing our current setups to our classic Mac setups, that that many-year period of using a particular technology and also a particular piece of Mac software just like falls in the hole in between them. So Safari is built-in software. And another piece of built-in software is Mail. What are you using for Mail, Brian? My answers are going to be very boring because I also, I'll use Gmail in the browser. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> I am I am an idiot. <laughs> not, no, that's not idiotic. I mean, there are plenty of power users who use Gmail in the browser or who use one of the very lightweight clients that goes on top of it. Like, was it Mailplane? Right. Yeah, that are basically like web views that can handle Mail to links essentially. Yeah. And what I use is kind of just one level on top of that, which I don't know, it, that would probably be offensive to its developer who's worked on it very hard. But I use Airmail, which is largely Gmail influenced. It can do other types of accounts. And I have both Gmail and Exchange accounts in it. But you have to be very careful when you're using your Exchange account in it, because if you do things like try to label a message Oh boy, that really confuses Exchange. <laughs> and Airmail doesn't know the difference. They're like, yeah, I came from the Gmail universe. You can absolutely add 
multiple labels to a single message and leave it in your inbox. And then Exchange gets very confused and sometimes decides that when it's that confused about a message, it actually just deletes it, <laughs> <laughs> which is the opposite of what you want. So yeah, I'm using Airmail on the desktop. I haven't got around yet to trying Airmail for iOS, but I am looking forward to seeing if that's the ideal solution for me there. But on the classic Mac, I was using, well, I was using AOL Mail for a good long time. Yeah, it it was quaint. It it did the very basics of email in a very sanitized package. I think well into the 2000s, the AOL client would still label certain email messages as, quote, from the internet, because you wouldn't actually send email messages to full email addresses. You would just send it to the AOL screen name, like, you know, like you were addressing a tweet or something. <laughs> and uh, anything else was labeled as from the internet, the big bad internet. But then I went to Outlook Express, which was free. Even though it was a Microsoft product, it was completely free and very feature-rich. And many of its features have carried all the way down the line into what then became Entourage on the Mac, Outlook on Windows, and other platforms. And I found it very useful. It was when it was the era when email was fun, where you looked forward to checking your email. I was subscribed to a whole number of lists. And so it had that same joy as checking my bookmark subscriptions. What new thing will show up in here that will be interesting for me to read, as opposed to what spam is trying to overtake me now? Did you have a classic standalone mail client, or did you go sort of straight from AOL to browser-based? Yeah, I did. That's exactly what happened. I was also like hesitant to reveal this, but... um. I, yeah, I, I also had an AOL account for a long time, pretty much until I went to college. And I would either check my mail in the AOL software when I was on the family computer, but when I was on the computer in my room, and uh, and like I explained in our early internet episode, I was using a free ISP provided by Kmart. You were just war driving for internet at that point. <laughs> but but um, I still had my one... Uh, email address. So I would actually use the web client for AOL mail when checking email from the computer in my room, uh, which was like two layers of terrible. <laughs> yeah, that didn't even exist for a while, but then then it started to show up. <laughs> this next item uh, on our list, I think, is uh, worth talking about, at least from my point of view, because uh, we have the same entries uh, currently, for listening to music, it looks like we both use iTunes, and on the classic Mac, used Audion. Right, and we did an entire episode on Audion. And I just wanted to make the additional observation that, at least for me, I'm still using iTunes the same way I used Audion, which is to play uh, local MP3 files that are on the very computer I'm holding, or my phone, for that matter. Uh, because I am a curmudgeon, and and if you're not convinced already that I like don't know how to be adventurous on the internet, here's another reason. And I just don't trust streaming in general. I want to like own my media, which is ironic because a lot of it is stolen. Uh, and so I still use iTunes just as like a local jukebox. Um, 
I know that you've you've uh, dabbled with Apple Music. Is that true? Yeah, it it has not gone well. <laughs> Vindicated. Apple Music screwed up a lot of things for me, which I will maybe someday grumble about on my other podcast. <laughs> I'm trying to keep it positive over there. At least, you know, at least mixed. You know, I I don't want it to just be uh, Ed's complaint corner. <laughs> I think you're doing a good job. <laughs> but yeah, iTunes now, Audion then. Oh, I also used, I mean, very early on before MP3 really was a widespread format, I just used the Apple CD audio player and used it to, within an inch of its life, squeezing out every single feature, including the things like uh, being able to set up the programmed playlists off of a single CD and all of that, and fond memories of when the computer would hard crash, but the uh, the audio decoding in the CD drive was 100% hardware and completely bypassed the operating system, and it would just keep on playing your music, even though everything else was dead, dead, dead. <laughs> you could at least finish the song before you had to... Uh, before you had to hard reboot your Mac. Oh, and one other thing that I used in the classic Mac for music playing was, um, it was the it was Mac amp. That was it. Like it's the, it's the Mac version of Winamp. What's that? What, Mac amp. Yeah. yeah. Um, which had a interface that I think was, it felt kind of familiar coming in the transition from like the Apple CD audio player to a jukebox application. That same, kind of skeuomorphic LCD interface. And then by the time you got to Audion, it was a lot more flexible, obviously digital with nods to the skeuomorphic world and real world displays, but then you could put skins on it and go wild and make it really a fully digital music environment. Uh, the next piece of software on here, I'm, I'm basically just going down my dock at this point. You know, these are the things I use on a regular basis. The next one that I have on here for my current setup is OmniFocus. And I'll be honest, there was absolutely nothing like that in my classic Mac life. But on the other hand, I didn't really need anything nearly so powerful for task management. I suppose that if I was, you know, in grad school or a professional then... I would have absolutely been looking for a solution like OmniFocus because I would have big projects that needed to be kept track of and got done. And who knows, I probably would have like written a hypercard stack for myself or something. Yeah, actually. But OmniFocus does all the heavy lifting for task management for me. I use it mostly at work. I have a few things for home life that are in there. And there are a bunch of other things in there that are for at home, things I would like to get done around the house that I then realize I put in there two years ago and never looked at again. <laughs> nice. The work tasks get checked regularly. So at least there's that. I can't say I use anything uh, with that focused towards task management, but maybe this is a, an opportunity for me to briefly talk about that I, I've tried a lot of notes apps, uh, Evernote, Apple's built-in notes when it became available. The one I stuck with with a long time was Simple Note, and uh, I've kind of picked them all up and dropped them all. I'm sure I have a lot of like copies of the same thing at various different states of editing on all those services. Um, but I, I tried to use those both as like a scratch pad and as uh, kind of like a having a keeping a to do txt in each of them, and uh, none of that has ever stuck very well for me. Yeah, I think on the classic Mac, the equivalent that I would use for that was 
a combination of ClarisWorks documents because they felt so lightweight and we didn't really know any different. I, I mean, I think now that it comes to the forefront of our mind whenever we try to use a new service, like, wait, what is the file format? How portable is this? Will I be able to access this in 20 years? And we weren't thinking that way. And we locked a lot of stuff into ClarisWorks documents that are very difficult to get access to now. But because it felt like such a lightweight app, and I mean, there was lots of functionality there, but if you just opened up and started typing, it felt completely natural. It just felt like a blank piece of paper. What What's the harm in doing this? Um, but also just the notepad desk accessory on the classic Mac, uh, at least once you were into system seven, I think that the notepad file could pretty much just grow forever. I don't know, maybe if you had like more than 255 notes in there or something, it would it would tell you that you had to delete some. But I never ran into the... I never got to the point where I ran out of notes in there. And all you had to do was, I think, just get to the last one and click the little tab that looked like folding up the corner of the next page and it would just keep creating them. And so any of those lightweight text tasks, would you could just go in there. And I know that I did. I, I remember being up to like 60 or 70 or 80 notes on our family computers running Classic Mac. And then in System 7.5 and 8, uh, you could use text clippings. Right, yeah. I saw an article recently on Tidbits, who've been around for a long time, all the way back to the original Mac, and they were talking about Quick Look and the fact that text clippings are essentially useless now. You can still create them, but if you quick look them, they are just like, hello, this is text clipping icon. You're like, that's not, the, that's not the point. It should show me what the text is. If that were a plain text file, it would show me all of the text inside, even if it was pages and pages long, and you won't show me this tiny little snippet of text. But they had a link to a plugin, because there are quick look plugins, where you can actually make those useful again. I remember... In like the early days of Quick Look, I got the first Quick Look plugin I got was for animated GIFs so that they would play in there instead of just showing you the first frame in the Quick Look window. But now it's native. So uh, moving down my dock, I've got something that certainly didn't exist in the classic back, and that's TweetBot. So again, just like having a web browser open is pretty much constant. Having Twitter open is also fairly much constant for me. And I was trying to think if there was any kind of equivalent that I had back on the classic Mac. I suppose you could say things like AOL Instant Messenger, but not quite, because that would be like if you're using Twitter mostly for DMs. Right. A kind of synchronous communication. Yeah. And uh, I was thinking of it in terms of like, what other software did I use where people would come to commonplace and post stuff and sometimes have real-time conversations and sometimes not. And the thing that immediately came to mind for me was Hotline, which was a Mac-only app that ran on dedicated Hotline servers that people could set up. And some were private, some were public. As I'm describing this now, it's starting to sound a lot like Slack, actually. <laughs> um, and within Hotline, there was there were DMs, there was a chat window, there was a news area that was kind of like a very lightweight bulletin board. There was file sharing of licit and illicit natures. <laughs> um, but it was a very Mac-focused community, and it was the kind of... you know Why I thought of it was because it's kind of the self-selecting community that you can put together on Twitter. So as far as I know, Hotline is completely gone. There's nothing quite like it 
at this point, but uh, it was one of those apps that I had as a pretty much always on conduit to the internet for a few years on the classic Mac. I was using it mostly, I think, from probably around like 2000 to 2003. Was Hotline's uh, website BigRedH.com? It may well have been. Their logo was certainly a Big Red H. I remember it was something kind of cool and not directly just like the name of the software. But listeners, please don't go to BigRedH.com because I just went to check if my hunch was correct and it downloaded what I assume is malware (laughs) automatically. Okay. It's just a a DMG that says Flash Installer and I'm not going to open that. Oh yeah, it seems totally legit. Yeah. (laughs) I just mentioned a couple minutes ago that I've dabbled with some kind of all-inclusive notes applications in the modern era and I did not use the notepad desk accessory or similar applications in the classic era. But uh, one piece of software that I think you can consider the same piece of software has been my word processor for pretty much the entirety of my use of the Mac. In the classic Mac days, it was simple text. And today it is text edit. I have it set up to open documents into plain text by default So it's really just a blank window. And uh, I have iCloud Drive turned off on my Mac so it doesn't go into like the weird start a new document or pick from the iCloud Drive uh, dialog box. So I can really just click on it in the dock or launch it from Spotlight or wherever. And like pretty much instantaneously, there's a new uh, blank text document ready for me to write into. And Ed talked about, you know, like that feeling of having a lightweight writing environment. Uh, that's entirely the reason of why I do this. It was something I got used to in the classic Mac days. And um, this is a true story. The, <laughs> the Mac I took to college was a 12-inch PowerBook G4. And it could not natively boot into OS 9, but it could still do classic. And because I was naive and didn't know OS 10 and was scared of anything that smacked of Unix... I would uh, boot into Classic so I could do writing in simple text for a long time, which sounds ridiculous, especially because the one thing I like about it the most is that it it's it launches so quickly. And back then I would endure the booting of Classic mode <laughs> just to get into it. Uh, but once I realized that you know you could configure text edit to go into plain text by default and uh, you know like set a nice monospace font and everything, I really haven't looked back. I do use Microsoft Office for a lot of uh, the projects I work on and and the teams that I work with. And uh, for one project I'm working on right now, we have to like get pretty deep into a code base and I'm using GitHub's Atom text editor for that. But definitely for anything I do personally and as far as I can take it when working with clients and other teams, I still use TextEdit as my main word processor. Yeah, I I definitely liked Simple Text because it had the rich text features, but if you just started typing, it, like I said, we were not considering file formats then. If you just started typing, you're like, yes, this is plain text. It's text and it is plain, even if that's not necessarily the way that it was being saved on disk. Whereas I found, I think one of the things that drove me away from TextEdit pretty quickly in OS 10 was that first of all, it defaulted to the rich text view and it has that ruler that is just 
ugliest sin. <laughs> same. I felt the exact same way. And like I said before, when on the classic Mac, we would open up uh, Clarisworks or Appleworks document and just start typing because it was still a very clean writing environment. The interface was minimal and didn't look like it was just slapped together. It was pixel perfect. And then you get to uh, get to text edit on the Mac. And I still feel this way. I have it definitely set to the default being plain text, even though that's not where I'm going to do most of my plain text writing. I'm going to do that in Text Wrangler. But because, just because if I open something accidentally, I don't want to see that horrible, horrible ruler. <laughs> <laughs> and then every once in a while, I drop in there to actually do something in rich text. Um, you know, if you have to do something weird, like copy formatted text from a website and see if you can get the same formatting out of it, sometimes I'll, I'll go to text edit for something like that. Oh, a couple other things I do with text wrangler now, like you said, Brian, you're looking just for that extremely quick solution to, uh, to get into it. I have a whole set of key commands I use to switch to my most commonly used applications and I use control option and letters to remember that. And uh, I have Text Wrangler set up as one of those. It's control option W for Wrangler <laughs> um, because T was taken. <laughs> and uh, so that'll get me very quickly into, into my text editor, and then I can just hit command N, and boom, I'm there. A couple of other things I found out is that um, I use launch bar, which is a critical piece of my setup, but has absolutely no analog that I ever used on the classic Mac. So I won't go into it very much here, but it has a couple of things where you can navigate to a folder in launch bar and there's an action that's new text file here. Oh, nice. And it, you just give it a name and it saves the file and opens it up in your default text editor. Or you can even capture text into launch bar and then say, send this text to a text editor and it creates a new document with it which is really, really fast and just gets you, again, the whole goal of just getting you into writing, into doing whatever you needed to with that app. Oh, one thing that I didn't put on my list because it's not in my dock and it's not in my menu bar because it just works silently and invisibly, but is also critical to my workflow and uh, probably critical to many of our listeners' workflows is Text Expander. Oh, yeah. So... I use Text Expander dozens, hundreds of times a day for various tasks. Uh, I have a whole suite of various abbreviations that I have it perform for me. Many of them are scripts and shell scripts for manipulating text and getting things done very quickly. And some of them are just because I can't spell words. <laughs> um, and I wanted to mention this one in particular because... I did use an extremely similar tool on the classic Mac. And I think much to the uh, distraction of my parents <laughs> um, who were sharing the same computer with me, but I had installed Type It For Me, which is another text expansion, piece of text expansion software. It goes all the way back to the classic Mac and I believe is still in active development for OS X. Um, and might even have some sort of cross compatibility with text expander snippets. Um, so it's, it's much older than text expander, but had many of those same basic features, uh, 
the basic features that you would expect for any app of that sort, which are things like being able to set up your abbreviations, being able to say uh, how case affects the expansion, not some of the more modern things like shell scripts or fill-in forms, but definitely a huge benefit to anyone who's doing a lot of typing. But the thing that one of those files that I wish that I had access to was I set up dozens and dozens and dozens of shortcuts at that time. And I think I was pretty young. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure it was still on System 7, maybe System 7.5. So we're talking the mid-90s. And I know that some of them were probably practical, but some of them were probably incredibly dumb. <laughs> and I would really be curious what I thought you know, my keys to efficiency and typing and commonly made mistakes were at that point. Um, because I know that they would be very different than than what I have now. I know that I had an, an abbreviation that corrected T-E-H to the, oh, because that was actually a common typo for me. And then I deleted it because it became cool to type T-E-H on the oh, internet. You are, are Tissuk or whatever. <laughs> right, exactly. And then I stopped using type it for me. And then uh, I didn't realize that it, continued to exist on OS ten until much later after I had already switched to Typeinator and then came around to Text Expander as my favorite of that type of app. While we're looking at really lightweight stuff that we have on our Macs, things that don't run in the dock but maybe run elsewhere, one that I use now that I just started using recently is iStat Menus. I had for years used Menu Meters, which was a free application. Both of these are for having little displays of what's going on in your system, whether that's the network activity, disk activity, disk usage, CPU usage. And I'm one of the kind of people who like to have a an eye on that at all times. Um, some of them more so than others. I, I mean, for a while, I know that on... Uh, one of my laptops in college, I was constantly, constantly monitoring the CPU usage because it could fluctuate wildly and really affect things. That was an early OS X system. Um, but for me, what I've always kept an eye on is the network usage. And in dial-up days, this was an important diagnostic because whether you were basically using it or not using it was going to be your bottleneck for whether you are going to be able to perform any additional actions. So, you know, thinking like on a 56K modem, what, your max download was something in the realm of ooh, a handful of kilobytes per second? Like five, if you were lucky? Yeah, five or six. And so you wanted to watch that number and be able to see, basically, if your internet connection was being flooded or saturated. And the same thing, I want to have that available today. And like I said, I used menu meters for a long time. That served me pretty well. Um, I don't know that it has full El Capitan support, so I tried out iStat menus. Or maybe I installed it and it didn't have like Retina support. Anyway, I switched over to iStat menus, which is a paid app. And uh, I enjoy it. It has some features that I like and some features that are not as good. But one of the things that I like as a diagnostic feature is being able to look at your network 
activity and then drop down the menu and it shows you which processes are actually doing the network traffic. Because now you can have many, many things going on. And you know, now I'm looking at it and it's telling me that Skype is doing very, very small amounts of traffic, both up and down, because we're just on audio. <laughs> um, and nothing else is messing that up, which is good. Um, I do have a funny story, though, about my use of IP net monitor, which is that one of the common features for these is that these type of system monitoring applications is that they'll give you overall statistics. Um, I think most of the modern ones pretty much do it since you last rebooted. So in iStat menus here, it says, it even says just totals since boot. And so I'm looking at my network traffic, um, and this is over Wi-Fi. So it's both local and, uh, and internet wide area traffic. But I would say it's probably mostly internet traffic, and my totals since boot are uh, 125 gigabytes up and 36 gigabytes down. Maybe there was some local traffic there. You might have been watching some Plex. <laughs> but those are huge numbers, of course. And I remember using IP Net Monitor. It wasn't like it wasn't like a menu bar app. It was a standalone window, and I would place it down in the corner so that I could see the relevant statistics and just a slice of the little graph that it was showing me. And then I could switch over into the window and see the full, like, uh, all time statistics. So it would keep an actual record of the entire amount of traffic at all times that you had the app open. So I was on a shared computer with my family. No one else in the family used it, but whenever I was sitting down at the computer, as soon as I was online, I would start up IP net monitor and after months, maybe a couple of years, I got to the point where <laughs> I was going to cross the threshold of having downloaded one gigabyte of data. <laughs> months or years. It's like a minute now. <laughs> yeah. And here's the thing. I opened up, I had a copy of Snaps Pro. One of the features of Snaps Pro is that you could take uh, movie screenshots and I I had some downloads started, and I knew that it was going to basically roll over the odometer <laughs> on on IP net monitor. And so I have a video of the very exciting moment where I crossed the threshold of downloading one gigabyte of data lifetime over a dial-up modem, which seems so, so trivial now. <laughs> and it's a QuickTime movie. It still plays. I still have it. I'll put it in the show notes. I do not have much or really anything in the way of like systems monitoring both current and in the classic Mac, except for, uh, you can't even really call it a hack, but I left the time separators in the menu bar clock flashing because that was, that was an easy way to tell if your system had froze, if they stopped yeah, you could just display the seconds as well. Oh, yeah, that too. But this was more minimalist. And uh, and that was really the only reason that I turned that on, because it was otherwise like kind of distracting. I actually went super minimalist in when I first got my own Mac, which was also my first OS X Mac. And I think these features have been reduced to a certain extent now, The how much you can customize the date and time formats and how much they show up in other portions of the system, but I had a completely custom format uh, 
that had a year month day format for short dates and then a completely different format for long dates. But the thing that I did with the time separators was I made the time separators a space. So not only did they not flash, they weren't there at all. And that carried across pretty much everything. And I think when I got really angry at it, but now I've, I've, I've given up on that very small and silly battle. I got really angry at it when iTunes stopped respecting that because it would show the, the time, uh, you know, the length of a song and it would be, you know, this song is three minutes and 45 seconds. It would be three space four five. And then even though it was still that way in my menu bar, uh, it put it, put the colon back in, in iTunes. I said, ah, the heck with this. <laughs> <laughs> One application that I use uh, pretty frequently in the modern days that I used very sparingly in the classic Mac days was Transmit. Uh, because I talk about how much I love Panic seemingly every episode on this show. And like the very first time I had any kind of hosting, it was like a free shared host plan with probably like a five or 10 megabyte maximum. But I needed to have something to manage the FTP on the Classic Mac. And I got Transmit. And there were so many wonderful uh, little bits of like that era of software design. And uh, I'll try and find a, a screenshot to put in the show notes but obviously it was styled like the classic Mac and uh, everything was kind of right angles and, and pixely and transmits kind of classic feature design is uh, you have a window on the left that represents whatever folder or file tree you're looking at on your local system and the, the column on the right, which is the corresponding folder file tree on the remote server and in the classic Mac version, in the early versions, there'd be a cool thing that says your stuff and a cool thing that says their stuff under it. And it was like 10 point Geneva with a space in between each character to kind of stretch it out and make it look cool. And it had a cool little truck as the icon that like was isometric and looked really cool. And so I was like, oh yeah. And it worked. Of course it worked. So I, I used that whenever I needed to do FTP then and I've stuck with it and it's whenever I need to FTP now. Yeah. I, my first FTP experience was a poor one as were so many of my internet experiences. Thanks to AOL. (laughs) The first website that I ever published was I helped my mom set up a website for her business and it was published through AOL gave you a certain amount of FTP space. Like you said, it was like two megs or five megs. But how are you ever going to fill that with, you know, just some very tiny images and and text? But the problem was with the AOL FTP interface, which I believe was literally at keyword FTP. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You had to go through a series of operations that required four or five clicks if you wanted to update any file, you basically had to overwrite it by creating a new file and making sure it had the same name and then saying, yes, I'm sure I want to replace it. And it would take forever just to make any changes. And then when I discovered Transmit, it was like magic. The only problem was that Transmit was expensive. You know, it was like 50 bucks for this piece of software that was finally going to make uh working with FTP easy. I think, you know, you could even directly FTP into the AOL stuff and then we moved on to other hosting. Um, so 
I'll admit it that I used a pirated version of Transmit for a while. And, uh, but then when, you know, I made it to adult life, I said, okay, this is a really great piece of software. I've been using it for years and I, I bought it. And even recently, whatever the latest major update to Transmit came out and I, I found out about it because I had launched the app or something. It said, here's this update and it's a paid upgrade. And I looked at it and I went, you know, I, I never do anything with FTP, but you know, I used a pirated copy of this for so many years as a kid. I'm buying your upgrade. Yeah, uh, I will admit that when I was on the classic Mac, I was using a pirated copy too. And uh, similarly, I uh, I think in like version late version twos or version threes, I started uh, paying for it. And when they moved or added it as well to the Mac App Store, I bought a license there. So I have. I have two transmit licenses now, again, purely out of guilt <laughs> to like pay, <laughs> make, pay reparations for when I was using a steel, a stolen version. What was the thing? Uh, surfer serials. Oh, that was exactly, it was, it was surfer serials. That's exactly what it was. It would come out once a month and, oh, we were terrible children. <laughs> uh, same for Ambrosia software, because I think the first thing I ever paid for was escape velocity Nova and everything until then was surfer serials. Yeah. And Ambrosia was on the leading edge of like phone home DRM <laughs> because they knew that that was, uh, that was exactly how us pesky kids were doing it. <laughs> we're, we're honest. We're trying to make good now that we have disposable income. Uh, let's see what other kind of productivity stuff do I have here? And also thinking of things that are part of the, uh, current installed apps that I skirt around uh, one that I don't use, although I thought about it, I thought about it when setting up a new the new Mac, was Photos. Uh, I've been using Adobe Lightroom, formerly Photoshop Lightroom, for many years. Um, and so I've sunk a lot into that file format, that library format, and it keeps track of a ton of my photo metadata. It also... Um, you know, like most Adobe apps have, uh, you can switch between tools by just pressing single keys without modifiers. Lightroom doesn't really have a whole lot of tools, but you can switch between a whole bunch of the modes with just single keys. And some of those, like, those are in my brain. And so I want that to be how my photo management works. And one of them is that if you're viewing a single photo to get back to the grid of photos... For grid, you press G. And like that has bitten me so many times where I'll be like viewing an online album of photos on some website and I'll want to get back to it and I'll hit G. It's like, no, no, that's not how this works. And so I knew that if I was going to make a transition to photos, it would not be just port porting my data over, but it would be reformulating all of that muscle memory. So I'm sticking with Lightroom. Um, it's been kind of interesting. I think I've bought three versions of it. Um, suffice it to say that there have been many, many updates to it. I think I went from like version three to version eight or something. <laughs> um, you know, it was like I had one, three, and eight. <laughs> um, but it has been a pretty good uh, OS ten citizen and has really moved things along. Photo management on the classic Mac? Well, I mean... It was pretty much a bunch of folders, which some people still carry on with to this day. And uh, 
you know, if that's what works for you, I, I think that's, again, that's the system that has that least technical debt and you're looking at it and going, well, a bunch of folders should work in 20 years. I don't think that uh, that Apple's going to go so crazy that we can't look at a bunch of old folders anymore. I use photos. I made the switch to photos, but in keeping with a lot of the things I've talked about in this episode, I don't have any of the cloud features of photos turned on. And I don't know if anyone else in the world still does this because it's so easy to use your iPhone without ever plugging it into a computer. But when it comes to photos, I treat my iPhone like a digital camera and plug it in to my laptop and get the photos off when I want to, like in bursts. Do you use Photos app or do you use Image Capture? I use Photos app. I'm not an animal. (laughs) (laughs) I use Image Capture every once in a while. Um, I do the same with Lightroom. You plug it in and it it views it as a device. And and similarly, uh, the the small amount of photos I had as a classic Mac user were just organized in a bunch of folders. Yeah, I still have several... (laughs) I have several things that are just in folders. I have an old iPhoto library that I'm not sure whether it's corrupt. I think I got most of everything out of there, but there may be like there's maybe like one or two months of folder or of photos that got lost in the shuffle there. Um I think that they like that was when I had a hard drive crash and no backup and 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 it was like trying to recover things out of a monolithic iPhoto library. It was a bad time, bad time. I now have Lightroom and most of the photos I care about are in there and lots of lots of good backups. One of the funny things, though, with the new 4K iMac was that um, when I was in college, I did study abroad in Italy, in Rome, and I lived there for three, four months. And I took a lot of photos, or at least what I thought was a lot of photos at the time. And I bought a new digital camera for the purpose of going there. It was a Canon PowerShot Elf. A PH? Yeah, ELPH. You know, the ones that were marketed as being the size of a credit card. And it was. It was a very compact digital camera at the time because no one had... Well, people had probably thought of the smartphone, but hadn't implemented it yet. (laughs) Um, And I took lots of photos that I enjoy going back and revisiting. And some of them are pretty good. The the camera did not have good low light performance. So some of them are blurry, but still have fond memories. And I opened up some of them in Lightroom to take a look at them because um, I had this beautiful new retina screen and I wanted to see all of my old photos in retina for basically the first time on anything bigger than an iPad. And so I went back and I have albums for, you know, best of Rome. And I opened up one of them and it was just floating in the middle of the screen. I went, wait, what's wrong? I must have my settings wrong. Make sure that you show it at one to one, a hundred percent. I, oh, <laughs> and so I don't know how many megapixels I like. I don't remember. I think that, you know, the, the maximum width dimension on that camera was like, I don't know, 2,100 pixels across. Oh, no. <laughs> and this is a 4K iMac. And so you just got you just got to zoom in on them. You mentioned backups. Uh, I can talk a little bit about my current and previous backup system. Current is good. Former was bad, very bad. <laughs> if yours is anything like mine. Uh, yeah, I, I think mine was more comical than anything. Uh, just speaking about, again, like how far we've come. But right now I just use built-in Time Machine. I have an external 
uh, SSD, a little portable USB SSD, which was still a bit of a splurge, but uh, I love it. You know, it's, it's USB 3, it's bus powered and it's SSD fast. Uh, and it makes everything very easy. Whenever I plug it in, I can do a time machine backup and things are great. In <laughs> in the old days, uh, the first computer I got to have in my room was my family's old Mac 2, which had a 40 megabyte internal hard disk. And of course, at the time that it got to go in my room, like the entire thing was mine. We had a new family machine downstairs. Uh, so like I got to do whatever I want <laughs> that filled up 40 megabytes. And our with our new uh, machine, we got a SCSI zip drive. And my dad bought me my very own zip disk because I think it was, that was like not an inconsequential purchase. They were probably like, what, 15 bucks per disk or something? Yeah, you would get rebates on them and stuff. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So I had my own zip disk and the drive was primarily designed to be uh, like backups and, and big media storage for the computer downstairs. But the Mac 2 had a SCSI port. So every once in a while I would unplug the whole thing plug it into the Mac 2. Not a simple operation. Not a simple operation. Lots of pins to line up and things to, to screw in. You have to shut down before unplugging or plugging it in. Make sure that your SCSI addresses were right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Those those days. Um, but when I booted up the Mac 2, I would put in my Brian's zip disk, which had like my school files and, and, other, and like all the icons I had downloaded off the internet. Um, but a zip disk was 100 megs. And all the stuff that I would otherwise fill it up with didn't even fill it up halfway. So I would just drag my computer's hard disk icon onto the zip disk and wait. And, you know, it would overwrite the previous copy. But, uh, like, what a world. You could just drag the entire computer's hard disk onto the removable media. And that was my backup process back in the day. And I think still in OS X, if you, dry, if you drag and drop an entire drive onto another location, it still just creates a folder with the same name and just copy, copy, copy. Yep. Uh, yeah, my uh, my backup solutions at the moment. Uh, one of the nice things about going to the desktop Mac was that I don't have to worry about plugging and unplugging hard drives. So I have the two terabyte Fusion drive and I said, just the heck with it. I'm getting a four gigabyte spinning desktop externally powered drive. Um and putting it here on my desk, it's plugged in constantly. It has two partitions, one for Time Machine and one for Clone Backup. So yes, that's one physical point of failure, but that doesn't really matter to me that much. Um, it's really for having two different types of backups in one place. And I also do Cloud Backup with Backblaze, which is a hilarious, funny joke when you think about I was excited to reach one gigabyte of download <laughs> that I've, you know, I've, I've backed up, uh, I'm sure I've transmitted over a terabyte of data to Backblaze, even though that's not the amount that they have currently stored. But with all the incremental changes, um, I have pushed a lot, a lot of data to them. We also had a zip drive when, uh, when we were using Classic Mac. And because it really became an important piece of of the setup to be able to extend your storage that much. Our, ours wasn't quite as dramatic because our PowerMac 6100 had a 250 megabyte hard drive. So you couldn't take the whole thing and put it on one zip disk, uh, but you could seriously 
increase your capacity for um, having other other media. Of course, not backed up because you would only have one copy of it then. Um, but I also think that I could take most of my files because there were my files, my parents' files, application system. I could take most of what I had and, and put it onto a single single zip disk as backup. I remember even before that, you know, we heard we heard the the rumors that you should you should be making backups of your system just in case things go wrong. And I remember we did it once and there there were tutorials on how to do it to make backups to floppy disks. And uh we would do it when we thought about it for for documents and that was generally pretty easy. It's like, okay, these are the documents that I've updated recently. I'll just drag these to a new floppy disk and label it. And that's fine. You could have incremental backups that way. Just get a new floppy disk. You know, at some point they became basically free. But we we're also told, oh, you should really make a backup of the contents of your system folder, because if that goes away, you're going to be in trouble. And, you know, you're going to have to go into the system folder, like we talked about in the past couple episodes. You're going to have to go in there, and you're just going to have to break it out piecemeal. Just say, like, extensions A through M, and make a floppy disk for that. And then extensions, you know, the second half of the alphabet, and make a sec- separate floppy for that. And we were going through, ticking off, you know, ticking off a list of, had we got this? Had we got that? Can we, oh, well, this is... uh this is 1.1 megabytes. How much we need? We can fit 300k of something else into this one. It was like a whole day project. And I remember getting through, going through it, and we got to some file that was like a data file for Microsoft Encarta, which was an encyclopedia which had lots of data, and it used some sort of some sort of monolithic database file for a good portion of it. And we got to it, and the file was 2.1 megabytes. And we just looked at each other and went. What do we do? <laughs> Where do we put it? We cannot back it up. <laughs> it was physically impossible with, with the hardware that we had. Speaking of external stuff that was part of our setups, um, you know, like we said now, uh, hermetically sealed, no way in or out. The only, uh, the only uh, storage port sort of on this is there is an SD slot in the back, which... Um, which is kind of scary almost to plug things into <laughs> um, because the screen is so thin. You feel like you're going to pop the, the SD card straight through the front of the monitor. Cause it's on the back, you know, like the, the earlier iMacs before they tapered them down so much on the sides, they had the, like the inch thick side and there was the CD drive and the SD card slot there. This one's in the back with all the ports and it's a very strange experience. Um, but optical drives, our first Mac uh, had a CD drive, which was cutting edge at the time, but it was a CD-ROM drive. And then we didn't get a we didn't get CD burning capabilities also built in on our second Mac, which was a Power Mac G3, and that was one of the last beige Macs. So we <laughs> we were uncolorful for about as long as any Mac user could be, um, because we got. Uh, the Power Mac G3 in 1997, just before the release of the iMac, and kept it for several years. But that didn't have a CD burner, so we bought an external CD burner. But all the CD burners were USB, 
and we did not have USB. So we had to install a PCI card that had a USB port that mostly fit <laughs> in the back of the machine <laughs> and um, was very persnickety about which port you plugged things into. Sometimes it just, it's like, oh, no, that drive that's been plugged into USB port one totally has to be plugged into USB port two today. Yes, you will need to restart your computer. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but we had that, and that was where we did a lot of backing up, was that, you know, you buy a giant spindle of CDs, again, you try to get a rebate so that they were cheap per unit, and then you'd say, okay, now I can put 600 megabytes of stuff on here, write the date on it, and throw it in a pile, and, and I've, I've got a backup. For that, there were no real native tools for doing CD burning, so we were using Roxio Toast. It was kind of a silly app, but it was actually pretty darn functional. You would um, you would just drag and drop files and folders into it, and you'd say, this is a data CD, and it would give you a very nice, uh, clean progress bar as it slowly lasered those bits onto a piece of plastic for you. Um, but it really did uh, a lot of work, and it could also do audio CDs, which was useful for moving your music around before the iPod. I think we're kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel here for uh, for apps that we use on a regular basis. Um, but one thing that we're using right now as part of our preparation for the show is Google Docs, which, of course, is not an app, but is a service that we're using within our browsers. And many people rely on Google Docs. Many people have relied on it to an extent that Featuring compatibility for it is causing them great strife, like the team over at Relay FM, <laughs> and who can't use it in split view on their iPads. <laughs> um, but I'm happy with it here in the browser. But I had to mention one thing that it reminds me of. Now with Google Docs, we take for granted the fact that anyone anywhere in the world can set up a Google Doc, share it with someone else, and collaborate in real time. And you can have, you know, Two people or one person or 20 people all typing in a document, and it all works pretty flawlessly. And there was one app on the Mac. I think this was an early OS X app, not a classic app. But there was one app that did this magic that um, before it was something that we took for granted. And that app was Subetha Edit. Did you ever use this, Brian? Mostly just to try it out and see what this uh, gimmick to me how it worked and felt. I never used it to actually like collaborate with a real purpose of getting work done. It did seem like a gimmick until you started using it and it started feeling like magic. Oh, totally. And so what it was, was it was when, uh, what was it Rendezvous, which then later got named Bonjour, was brand new technology. They seized upon this and uh, used that network discoverability to do collaborative editing of text files. And so you could share a file on your local network and have it be discoverable, or you could set up a kind of lightweight server to do remote work, and multiple people could be in a document. And one of the things that was really great about it was that it was not just the real-time collaboration, but also like real-time change tracking. And it was very lightweight. It just it would highlight in a nice pastel color anything that was new contributed by a certain person. And they would have their individual colored cursors, just like we have in Google Docs today. And it really worked great. I know that I used it for collaboration on a couple of school projects. And then 
at one point I had to collaborate with people who were not all Mac users and we tried to find a internet-based solution and pre-Google Docs and it just totally fell flat. And it was great that this app uh, could do that on, on the Mac. It was really just a great experience and had a really adorable icon that I will not forget, <laughs> which was that, you know, you had the normal like uh, text edit icon where it's just paper and a pencil and maybe like a hand coming in to, to write on it. Instead, they had the, the papers in the background and a pencil, you know, a real like wooden sharpen it with <laughs> a sharp blade pencil. But then there were these little like rubber gummy guys who were little green men and there were three of them, and all three of them are simultaneously holding on to the pencil and guiding it um, to indicate the fact that they're all working on the document together. The guy up by the eraser is like hanging on for dear life, though. They're like kind of green cousins of the AIM running guy, like kind of that style, like kind of glossy. Yeah, his Martian brothers. Yeah, yeah. There is, in fact, a revived version of it for OS X. It's available on the Mac App Store. Subetha Edit 4. Nice. Yeah. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. It was it was a paid editor then. Um, I think they had a thing where, um, this was how I used it, where they basically just said, it's free for educational use. Are you educational? And I said, yes, and used it mostly for free. Um, you couldn't unlock like all of the collaboration features that way. But yeah, here it is. It's available on the Mac App Store. It's $29.99. Um, which is probably about the same price that they were charging for it uh, 10 years ago or so, 10, 12 years ago. Yeah, good for them. Yeah, The Coding Monkeys is the name of the company. Oh, they're the guys who uh, who did the uh, iOS implementation of Carcassonne, which also has a similar kind of looking man, even though that actually comes from the physical board game that they did not design, <laughs> as far as I know. That's a pretty good roundup of our hardware setups now and the software we're using today compared to the software we're using uh, in the era of the classic Mac. As well as some of those hardware limitations and how we had to work around them. Very small disks, very small amounts of RAM. Yeah. Um, before we sign off for this episode, are there anything about, is there anything about the, uh, the machines either of us used in the, in the classic Mac era that we want to leave our listeners with? Um, oh, you had written something in here about the Mac 2, which uh, was about its display. Yeah, I mentioned earlier that my family had a Mac 2, um, and when they got a second Macintosh, it became my personal machine. But uh, the Mac 2, man, uh, when I was looking back just to see like what its specs were to see if I remembered it correctly, it was an expensive machine. And so I was, I was talking to my parents last night, and my, I asked, like, did it really... Did it really cost that much? And before my dad could answer, because of course he was the one who had made the decision, my mom cut in and was like, oh yeah, yeah, you were a baby. We had just moved into a new, we had just bought a house and your father decides he wants to buy a, a, a almost $10,000 machine. That's a car. We could have had a car. <laughs> um, luckily my dad was working at a university in Cleveland. So he got it at the educational discount. But yeah, he got a, a like kind of mid-tier Specwise Mac 2 with a color monitor and an image writer printer, which uh, all added up to like pushing ten thousand dollars before a discount, and that's in like late nineteen eighties dollars too, which is just crazy to think about. Very very lucky. 
to have that uh, in the house. But yeah, um, there are just so many things about that machine that seem crazy today. The first is that the the monitor was a significant chunk of this expense because it was a high resolution color monitor. Now, uh, that high resolution was 640 by 480, <laughs> which was a step up, but like comically low compared to what we do with our retina machines today. And the color depth was 256 colors, like not even thousands, let alone millions or like, or like we've stopped counting at this point. Yeah. And like the only thing we can talk about is like, I think in your 4k iMac, it's like, we've unleashed a new depth of color that was previously (laughs) unknown. Oh yeah. It has, uh, the, what is it? Something P color space. It can actually reach, uh, yeah, reach reach colors here to four hundred match. Yeah, uh, make no mistake. This very very expensive monitor in the nineteen eighties was six forty by four eighty and two hundred fifty six colors, and it was the top of the line because it was a Trinitron. Yes, and uh, yeah, this is the thing I pulled out of one of the sites I found cataloging it. Um, I remember this, and I didn't realize that this was a, a, a not a defect, but just something you get with a Trinitron display. Uh, I'll just read this quote. There's a thin horizontal wire about one third of the way up from the bottom, which you may see as a thin gray line. This is normal. It is not a defect. I totally remember this. Uh, like it's a horizontal, like sub pixel width line just running across the full width of the screen. It was always there. And I always thought it was just, we like, we had a bum monitor. We had that on our very first Mac as well. It was, I don't remember the exact model of the display. It was an Apple display. And it was based on the Trinitron technology. And like a few days into having the computer, we we noticed this line. And my dad asked someone, they said, no, no, that's that's how it's supposed to be. It's a feature, not a bug. Um, and we lived it with it for many years before moving on to a larger display. We went from 13-inch to 17-inch display. <laughs> and with a variable uh, variable resolution. And yeah, it was good that it was not a defect. It was the kind of thing that was easy to ignore, unlike a couple of our other later Macs where they uh, we got them out of the box and we, after a couple of days of use, no- would notice a dead pixel. And it is a defect and there's just nothing you can do about it. Yeah. It, like you said, it's it's good that, that with this, the line on the Trinitron displays, you could kind of learn to ignore it. Uh, there's something about like one or two dead pixels that are harder to ignore because you know, like it's just the one or the two and uh, versus this line. If, if the line, I guess were more obnoxious being like, and you can't do anything about it. I don't know how people would have put up with that. Yeah. I had some terrible monitor problems in, in my middle days as a Mac user. I think I've told the story before on here of my, my grandpa's performa with the monitor that was just all kinds of screwy. It would it just, it would just lose the red channel and you would have to whack it, <laughs> physically hit it on the side multiple times to try to get it back. Um, and then I had just forgotten about this, blocked it out until just now. My first Mac that I owned myself was the, uh, the PowerBook G4 that I took to college and Shortly after getting to school in my freshman year, the monitor started going weird. And if you kind of held it wrong, it would lose, which channel would that be? It would lose the, also the red channel. And so like, um, if 
you had something that was p- supposed to be pure white, it would be cyan. And it would have a kind of like model, like it, it, it was clearly something was wrong in the display. So I took it to the authorized Apple re- repair place on campus because it was still under warranty. And they said, yeah, we have to replace the entire top display unit, um, which they did. And that fixed most of the problems, except the new top display unit had two half dead pixels. Ugh. So, but I mean, to be fair, I went from the entire screen being cyan to just two pixels being cyan. <laughs> so they, they really did do me a service. Yeah, uh, I'm sure we could get. We've we've gone long. This might be a record for our show, uh, but I'm sure we could keep going about all the the other little things we remember about our the hardware and the software of our classic Mac setups. Maybe that'll be a topic for another episode. And we've dedicated some episodes to these things. You know, I I've been thinking recently about keyboards. We did a whole episode on on keyboards and input devices, that kind of thing. Um, lots of lots of good good stuff to think about in the ways that the classic Mac worked for us and didn't work for us. And I think it's nice to do this because whenever I go through and actually think about this stuff critically, even when we're pretty down on current Apple, it makes the new stuff look really good. And you can see that they have had a consistent arc of improvement. And that's worth remembering. So if you'd like to share any of uh, your favorite software from this current era that harkens back to the classic Mac era or anything else, we have a contact form on our website, simplebeep.com, or you can uh, talk to us on Twitter. We are at simple underscore beep. Yeah. We'd love to hear your stories of, uh, you know, we have all these quirky stories about our old Macs and we're sure you do too. (laughs) Yeah. And you can also find a full list of previous simple beep episodes. We've referenced a bunch of them in this one at simplebeep.com slash episodes. We are also individually on Twitter, I'm at Bsuto, B-S-U-T-O. And I'm at Ecormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y, and also at underscore PicoMac. <laughs> Got to get that plug in there. Good plug, yeah. Yeah, that one's mostly an automated account. Um, so if you want to talk to me, uh, go for Ecormany, but you'll, you could get updates on the new show there. And I'd love it if you took a listen, because like I promised, it won't take too much of your time. <laughs> It's already part of my morning routine. We're making coffee in the morning or something. Tea, but yeah. Yeah. Very good. Very good. All right. Well, thanks for listening and we will see you next time.